0: Exodus chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. The Tennessee Titans did lose in the divisional round of the NFL playoffs last night on a game-winning field goal as time expired. And my family was over at my house watching the game. Um, and, and after the game was over and they left and after I finished up, uh, picking up the pieces of my heart that were on the ground, I, uh, I got back to work on my sermon. Because ultimately, And it's funny that I'm saying this, but ultimately, there's a lot of things in life that matter a lot more than football. A lot of things. So there's rewording, reviewing, revising. We have some Titans fans here that probably have some heavy hearts, but odds are that there are probably people here with actual heavy hearts, with actual things going on in their lives, things that they're going through, dealing with, maybe people watching at home. But we're glad you're here. And whatever the reason is, I believe that you're here, that God has put you here for a reason. We're glad that you're here, decided to join us this morning. So let's pray. And then we'll jump into the text. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everybody here, Lord. Thank you for their desire to be at church. What a great thing it is that we have so many people that desire to be at church. The desire to be in fellowship with one another. Thank you for the fact that we have this place where we can meet, Lord, and we can meet up with people that we just love and we get to see all the time, but we just love to be together. Thank you for the fact that we have teachers that will teach kids and adults alike the Bible. Thank you for the fact that we can worship you freely and for those that prepare those things and Spend time preparing all week just for Sunday. Thank you for those people. Lord, I pray that you would just speak through me that you would be glorified in everything, in the rest of our service this morning. I pray that you would just help me teach the text clearly. I pray that you would help me teach with clarity and with passion, Father. But above all, that you would be glorified. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you're just now joining us, if you haven't been with us in a while, uh, our church has been walking through the book of Exodus over the past several months. And we've seen a lot of different things happen. We've seen God redeem and save his people Israel from slavery. We've more recently seen God instruct his people on how to live through the Ten Commandments given to them by Moses. We're now past the Ten Commandments. And now, once again, God is using Moses to instruct his people on how they are to act. But now he's using a case-by-case basis, case-by-case instruction on what to do in certain situations. And we're picking up right where we left off at the beginning of Exodus 23, which Hunter read for us. Let's just read that again, and then we'll jump into the text. Exodus 23, verses 1 through 9. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. And then finally, verse 9, You shall not oppress a sojourner, for you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt." I think the way that our text is, is broken down, verses 1 through 3 and 6 through 9 have the same main point. They deal with the same issues. And I think what that is, is uh, they're a warning about how we should behave in court, but also a warning about how we should behave in general with others. And so we'll summarize them like this The first one is do not offer a false witness. It's the beginning of verse 1. The second one is do not offer a malicious witness. But the third one in verse 2 is do not join the mob and offer a perverting witness. The one in verse 3 is do not unjustly side with the poor. And then verse 6 is do not unjustly side against the poor. Verse 7, do not allow somebody to be put to death as the result of a false charge. Verse 8 is do not take bribes. And then verse 9, do not oppress sojourners or foreigners. As we stated earlier, I, think, uh, I believe these specific case laws have an overarching theme. and What I think that theme is this, that the people of God should demonstrate honesty and integrity in court and in their dealings with others in general. The first part of verse 1, you shall not spread a false Report. Now, the first law that we see here is a direct application of a certain commandment. What commandment was that? Use your hands. Anybody know what commandment it was? Eight? Eight? Right? Remember a false witness? Right? No, it's nine. You're right. You're right. Nine. I was talking about stealing. Yeah, yeah. My bad. Nine, right? Um, because if nine people are saying one thing and then this tenth person saying something else, they're probably lying, probably bearing false witness, right? So Moses is restating a command from God that was already given earlier, you shall not spread a false report. But in order to understand that command, we need to understand what a false report is. A false report could be one that is simply untrue. There are countless ways that something can't, won't be true. The most obvious way is to say something that we know is false, right, straight up lying. But most of our false reports, which are lies, are a bit more subtle, and there's a lot of different ways that we do this. We get kind of crafty when it comes to these kinds of things. Uh, Maybe we tell one side of the story and not the other. Maybe we leave out details that don't fit what we're trying to say or might incriminate ourselves. Sometimes we take something that somebody said out of context and use it in whichever way that we want. Sometimes we only hear what we want to hear, and then when it comes to telling somebody what we heard, we're not really saying what was said. We're just telling them what we heard. I think it's safe to say that uh, a great deal of trouble could be avoided if we just obeyed this simple command, if we could just follow this simple command. Now, thankfully, um, at least in, in churches uh, around here, it's, it's kind of rare for someone to get up here and say an out-and-out an out lie. That's kind of rare. But unfortunately, it is not uncommon for the kind of false reports that God forbids to be spread. What we think we know to be true is tainted by a lot of different things, self-interest being one of them. I think most people would deny spreading false reports. they say, I don't really do that. I don't think I really spread false reports. Well, I would say you should probably know yourself better than that because I think you do and I think I do also. We tend to be a little bit overconfident about the accuracy of the things we're telling others. Tend to be a bit overconfident uh, about our judgments concerning others. We tend to put too much confidence in what we heard about someone or who said what to whom. It's really very easy to spread a false report, even if we don't know that we're doing it sometimes. When you're sworn into court, what do they tell you to swear? What do they make you swear? To tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, right? I think the simplest way to put it is that when we fail to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, we spread false reports. The second part of verse 1, you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Basically, you shouldn't work with someone else to wrong another person. This part of the law is talking about two people in collusion making a false charge uh, against someone or denying a testimony that was correct. The law strictly required... um, two two witnesses to testify so that justice would prevail. Otherwise, it would just be one person's word versus the other. So absolute honesty was crucial to the legal process of the time. If two people got together and lied about what actually happened, the odds are justice was not going to be happening. If two people secretly agreed to falsify their testimonies to harm someone, It would be unlikely for the court to discover their lying, meaning an innocent person would be punished for something he or she did not do. Deuteronomy 15 through 19 says this, "...a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established." Verse 16, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days. Verse 18, the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So whatever the two people get get together and they, they, they try to do to the innocent man, whatever they were trying to do, they have that done to them. They're trying to get together, get this guy thrown in prison. Well, then that guy gets thrown in prison. Does that make sense? Isn't that just? Isn't that the way that it's meant to be? Isn't God just? Anybody have any uh, biblical examples of malicious witnesses, maybe witnesses saying things that weren't true about somebody, joining together to do that against one person maybe? Maybe. Yeah, maybe Jesus, right? Kind of a big one. Maybe Jesus. All the witnesses at Jesus' trial, they joined together to wrong the innocent so that he would be treated as guilty. That's a perfect example of a malicious witness. Verse 2. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Another pressure that witnesses face sometimes is telling people what they want to hear. We as human beings, we are easily influenced by the opinions of others. That's true. We want others to like us, and as a result, the truth gets stretched, squeezed, or altogether forgot. But God says, do not fall in with the many to do evil in a lawsuit so as to pervert justice. Don't fall in with the crowd. Don't say something just because you think it's what will get you out of trouble or will make you a more popular person. In this case, the witness honestly intends to tell the truth but finds it hard not to be influenced by the court of public opinion. But the courtroom is not the only place that this happens, is it? Every day, we feel pressure to fall in with the crowd. Every day, we feel pressure to say what people wanna hear. The Bible commands us to say what is true, even when we know it will be unpopular or unwelcome. This law deserves special attention, I think. And the reason is because it's so difficult, it's so hard to obey. Even though throughout history, even though the majority is typically wrong, we're so used to going along with the crowd that we fall right in. But the Bible says, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Rather than letting the majority rule, which is what we typically do, I think we're called to follow Christ, which means often means going in the opposite direction. This is the law to remember when everyone in school is making fun of maybe the kid that nobody likes. This is the law to remember in high school or college where everybody wants to go out drinking after the game. It's the law when your company wants to cheat to get ahead of the competition or when everybody else on the board wants to approve something that is immoral. There's a lot of pressures that we face from our peers. But what does the crowd tell us? The crowd tells us to get as much as we can, go ahead and gratify our sinful desires. Don't be inconvenienced by other people's needs. That's what the crowd says. Before we know it, we're thinking the way that the crowd thinks and doing the things that the crowd is doing. But there's a problem with that. We're supposed to be different, just as the nation of Israel was supposed to be different, set apart, holy. God has called us and the people of Israel to be set apart. He said, do not follow the crowd in doing what is wrong. You belong to me. You are my people. So instead of letting the majority rule like we do, let's let Christ rule. Let's get rid of the desire to follow the crowd. These laws, they're they're concerned with justice, right? And many of them are specifically concerned with truth-telling. But justice hinges on the truth. So if the truth is perverted, then so is justice. And we are not to pervert justice. Verse 3. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. This is kind of interesting. As odd as it is to say, sometimes there is pressure to side with the poor. A lot of us, we kind of hear that and we're like, yeah, that kind of makes sense, right? You side with the poor that they should get the benefit of the doubt, maybe a little favoritism. The poor man is the one who has everybody's sympathy, right? The the poor man is the underdog, the little guy going up against the establishment. So people shout for so-called justice. Since the poor man is the victim, they argue, he ought to have the verdict go in his favor. They want the big guy to be taken down just because he's big and the little guy to win just because he's little. Well, something that God knows is that the poor are just as sinful as everybody else. In a legal sense, they're just as likely to be guilty as everybody else. Just because one man is poor and one man is rich does not mean that the rich man is guilty. God loves the poor, but he does not allow financial need to be an excuse for injustice. In other words, don't be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. Just because he's poor does not mean he's right. If a poor man is guilty, he should be condemned. Likewise, if the rich man is. And then verse 6, we see the opposite of that. You shall not pervert justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Now we're on the opposite and possibly the more common one. The rich often get richer at the expense of the poor. Is that right? but however it's it's obviously wrong to favor the rich over the poor another version of this text says do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits the, from verse 6 to 9 and 1 to 3 there's a bit of a switch verses 1 through 3 were more so for witnesses and, and this law and then the next verse especially for judges judges have a responsibility to make sure that the poor get a fair trial which includes getting competent counsel. Rich people have more resources. This gives them a tremendous advantage when it comes to legal matters. So it's up to judges to protect the powerless, making sure that the poor get what they deserve. And this is something that I think is truly beautiful. The Bible here, as always, shows perfect balance. The scale's not tipped in either way. The poor are not always right. The rich are not always wrong. There should never be bias towards the rich nor prejudice against the poor, but all should receive equal justice. Once again, I don't know if you're noticing a common theme or not, but God is just. And every law that he is putting in place is just because that's who God is. Verse 7 Let's read verse 7. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. This is the opposite of verse 1. In verse 1, the injustice was to let the guilty go free. And here in verse 7, the injustice is to treat the innocent as if they were guilty. God tells them, don't kill the innocent, for I will not acquit the wicked. Because God is just, he cannot and will not let the guilty go free. But what, he'll, what will he do with the false witnesses? Well, Proverbs 19.9 says, a false witness will not go unpunished. So we think, man, these guys, are, these guys are getting off free. No, they're not. God will not acquit the wicked. He will not allow the guilty to go free. A false witness will not go unpunished. Once again, God is just. Verse 8, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. This one's kind of straightforward. Justice can never be for sale. Whether it comes in the form of cash or a gift or preferential treatment, the people of God are not to take bribes of any kind. Bribery always corrupts the course of justice. It closes the judge's eyes to the truth. It blinds the clear sighted. It's contrary to the very character of God. Deuteronomy 10 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Verse 9, You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. There's also temptation to deny justice to outsiders. But God says not to oppress them. God has also commanded the people of Israel to not mistreat sojourners a chapter earlier. Exodus 22 verse 21, just one chapter ago uh, said, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Almost the exact same thing. The command is repeated only this time in the context of public justice. So in legal matters as in everything else, the people of God were not allowed to take advantage of foreigners. Because they were foreigners at one time. God is saying, Don't you remember when you were sojourners? You know the heart of them because you once were one. Ultimately, the the first main point that we see is is witnesses should tell the truth, judges should be fair, juries should make sure that justice is done. The same principles apply when we have disputes at home, at work at school, and even in the church. As followers of Christ, we are always called to be truthful, impartial, and fair. Because God is truthful, impartial, and fair. God is just, and so he wants us to be just. If you notice, we skipped verses um, 4 and 5. We did 1 through 3 and 6 through 9. So we're going to go through 4 and 5 now. Let's read those together. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. That brings me to my second main point that I think this text teaches, that the people of God must not jump at opportunities to get vengeance on their enemies. An enemy is somebody that we hate. And for some reason in our minds, when we have an enemy, we see it in our minds that it's okay for us to abuse them, to wrong them. But God holds us to a higher standard. Rather than hurting our enemies, God says that we should help them. If our enemy's ox or donkey has gone astray, we should bring it back. If their donkey is in a bind, we shouldn't keep walking and say, huh, that's what they deserve which is tempting, we should help them. If we have the chance, we should help them. But being placed in that situation, it would be tempting to do nothing, to let the animal wander off, to let him deal with his animal on its own. After all, nobody would know. But the right thing to do is to catch the animal to bring it back to its rightful owner. That's the first scenario. And then the second scenario involves an actual encounter with the enemy. A man's walking along, he sees his enemy struggling with his donkey. Maybe it's fallen and it can't get up. And when something like this happens, it's hard not to enjoy it. It's hard not to say, man, God catching up with them. Like you've been praying for that day or something. But Proverbs twenty four seventeen says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles instead of our natural tendency, our natural desire, God calls us to rush to our enemy's side and lend him a helping hand. in the movie War Room, I'm sure a lot of you have seen it I know my family's seen it a lot just to watch that movie a lot it was a great movie but in that movie Tony Jordan, a husband and a father comes to faith in Jesus Christ after his wife has been praying for his salvation for a a very long time. Tony had just been fired from his job and during that, po- during that process he had two bosses. One boss was very compassionate, very um, apologetic about the whole entire situation. He was very kind, very loving. But then the other boss that he had was very harsh, unnecessarily harsh, almost like he was out to get him the whole time. Tony. This is several weeks later after being fired. He was on his way to his daughter's gymnastics competition when he saw his, his former boss, the one that was so especially harsh with him, pulled over on the side of the road with a flat tire. So what Tony does is he doesn't do what we would naturally do, right, which is roll right by, either going as fast as that thing could go, or roll down the window and say something stupid at him. What he does is he pulls over, gets out of the car, says nothing, says nothing to the man, changes his tire for him, gets in the car, and leaves. That's a modern day example of this case law. It ties the two together. This boss was a malicious witness and Tony could have let his enemy suffer but he didn't. And that's how God wants us to treat our enemies. Another way to say this is that God wants us to treat our enemies as our friends. And when we treat them this way, when we treat them this way, that's what they become. It's hard to hold on to a grudge at the same time we're holding on to somebody else's donkey, right? Something happens in our heart that turns this 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 cruelty this this vengefulness into compassion kind of like when you begin to pray for your enemies your heart begins to change towards them it's also hard for an enemy to keep hating someone who comes to help him to his aid compassion triumphs over aggression so we're not done yet but application wise do you have any enemies Has anybody mistreated you? Is there someone who antagonizes you? Are there people that you see in the grocery store and try to avoid? Is there anyone who arouses your animosity? If there is, then God's called you to love this person. Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. One of the distinguishing marks of the follower of Jesus Christ is that they do good to those that hate him. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. There was a woman whose husband was murdered on the job. He was a traveling salesman. And one day, a man posing as a customer killed him in cold blood. It was a wicked crime, the kind only an enemy would commit. But the woman was a Christian who knew that she was supposed to love her enemies. And so as her spiritual and emotional wounds began to heal, she asked God for the grace to forgive Some years later, when her husband's killer was on death row, she was able to write to him in prison. She offered him full forgiveness and encouraged him to put his faith in Jesus Christ. Well, after that, the million-dollar question is, did he repent? Is he a believer now? Well, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. God only knows, but what everyone can know is this. Someone showed that man the love of God. This is what we're called to do as Christians love our enemies. This is the kind of love that we give because we've been given. The kind of love that we've already received and we want others to receive it as well. A love that treats enemies like friends. It's a love that Jesus showed when he died on the cross. Romans 5.10 says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We were enemies, enemies with God, at enmity with him, shaking our fists at him, doing what we wanted to do. And he went to the cross. The third point that I think we get from this text is that God wants the people of God to seek justice and to guard against injustice. It's what it's all about. If you could combine the two main points, it would be this. In all areas of life, whether it be school, work, church, God wants us to seek justice and he wants us to guard against it, against injustice. In the courtroom, in conversation, in school, at work, God wants believers to act justly. And that's what this is all about, ultimately, this text, being just. But acting justly is a lot more than just doing the right thing. It's something that we need help in order to do. Acting justly involves allowing the, the spirit of the living God to hold sway over our attitudes, over our impulses. It involves the emptying of our self, our egos, our agendas, our preferences, our desires, and laying those things at the foot of the cross. It involves giving the final say to him and him alone who is able to act Truly just, and that's God. God is just, and we can trust Him to act justly, and He wants us to do the same. Application wise, though, I've already said a few. For the believer, I kind of have a lot here. We should strive to be diligent. We should strive to be fair. We should strive to be honest. We should strive to be just. The the scales of justice should be blind. We should show no partiality. We should seek instead to honor what is true and what is right. We should avoid all temptation for vengeance or seeking harm for another. That's for the believer. But for the non-believer, it's not the same. You see, the more that we study the law, the more we see how guilty we truly are. Right? That's the purpose of the law. The law shows us our sin, shows us how sinful we are compared to Jesus. But as we said earlier, God says he will not, he will not acquit the guilty. And if you're not a believer, that's what you are, is guilty. God will not let the guilty go free. So how can that change? How can you be set free, declared righteous? The only way is by trusting in Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to pay for the penalty of the repentant, guilty sinner. And so, since he has met the law's demand, we can be declared innocent. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done for us. So if you're not a believer, if you're still guilty, trust Christ. Trust His work on the cross as your own. Not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done for us. appreciate you, brother. If you're needing to repent, you're not sure how to do that. I would love to talk to you about that. There's a lot of people here, a lot of believers here in our congregation would love to talk to you about that. Let's um, grab me. I'd love to talk to you about that. i love to miss the lunch and learn because we're talking about how you could know him and love him with your whole heart. Aren't you glad God is just? No, no sin goes unpunished and makes us doubly thankful for Jesus because we are all guilty of sin. And for those who've trusted in Christ, we're, we are made right and uh, it's something to re- rejoice in. Thank you for tuning in to our Sunday morning services at Beaver Baptist Church. We are currently studying the book of Exodus If you have any questions about today's message, or would like more information about our church, call us at 901-837-2904. You can also visit our website at beaverbaptist.com.